Welcome to part two of Explain Me. I'm your co-host, Patty Johnson, and I'm here with William Pohida to talk about the difference between relational aesthetics and social practice, and then discuss a few recent deaths, how artists don't get resale royalties, and Doug Aiken's terrible, terrible show at 303 Gallery. Let's pick things where we left off by defining relational aesthetics and social practice. William? Well, relational aesthetics, I think, is the sort of starting point for how we understand social practice, right. where the focus of the art is not the object that's produced, but the interactions between the participants or the people, the audience. Now, but why is relational aesthetics different than social practice? There's, there doesn't have to be any um, purpose in relational aesthetics. Think Rickrit Tiravinaj's, you know, soup, soup you know, stuff, people just yeah. eating together and sort of looking at culture and tradition and the interaction between people becomes the focus of the art. But there's no expectation that it's going to help make the world a better place, that it's going to have a kind of social justice. Yeah, purpose. but I feel like art, like there is sort of this assumption that art is a de facto good. So like if, it, you know, if the focus of the of the art is the social exchange, then that must somehow have a uh, like social benefit. Well, I think that's the default setting. I don't think that's always the case. And social practice can be done really badly and have the opposite effect yeah. of what it would like to do. That has a lot to do with... I, I still think that relational aesthetics has its definition built into it. It's still looking for like an aesthetic. It's still about form. You could kind of reduce it to a formal thing in some way, right. as opposed to social, which is really putting the word aesthetic is not, it's not social aesthetic practice. It's yeah, just yeah, yeah. Social, it's practice, social practice. Right? Yeah. It, it's sort of, I think it's taking another step outside of the bounds of the art world in some way. So, yeah, I don't know if the Istanbul Biennial is going to have more or less meaning than Rabbit Town or the Museum <laughs> of Pizza. But as, as a, a supporter of artists, I'm going to have to err on the side of the Istanbul Biennial. Whether or not Borio is able to kind of... I, what I'm really curious about the, the Istanbul Biennial is if he's going to try to float like a new thing. He's known for relational aesthetics and coining that through his writings during the course of the 90s. And then we didn't hear too much from him through the aughts. And then sort of like he floated this term, the alter modern, which was really about, it's a bit Deleuzian. The condition of art is just moving between poles and boundaries. You know, it's about travel across different dimensions or whatever. It was kind of nebulous, but it seemed to be about travel and mobility as being a defining condition of art. And that didn't take, no one really cared about it. And so I'm wondering, you know, is, is he going to try to well, define art for us now with this biennial. I mean, I wonder whether we're sort of coming to an end of where curators who are also writers are the ones who coin the terms for these important quote-unquote movements, because I think, you know, Nicholas Bouriard sort of fits in that category, but I'm also thinking about, say, like, oddly enough, like Jeffrey Deitch, like post-humanism. Did he try to coin that? He did coin it. What? He was like, he was like, I think he's kind of the... I would identify him as being sort of the, the main driver for the return of figuration. Okay. Um, hmm. You know, in the late 90s, early, early aughts. I mean, the show that he curated was called Post-Human, and that was in, like, 1993 or something like that, but it got, like, huge amounts of attention, and, like, Inca S. in the High talks about how she was somebody who, like, really benefited from that particular movement because he later curated her into some shows and, like, that kind of... All right, so like, within um, the art world, Deitch brought the concept of post-humanism, which has a longer lifespan and has been written about and discussed by lots of other people. But no, he, he sort of popularized it within the art. This is, he didn't invent that term. I think he did. No, post-humanism is a kind of philosophical... I might have to Google All right. Let's Google. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is... Oh, a, this is... A, a, philosophy that has been kicking around but he popularized it within the art movement right i mean but this is because he was like look we live in plastic surgery world we and like he i mean the crazy thing is is that he has all these pictures like i bought the catalog after i found out about this and like he has all these like 
weird pictures of Ivanka Trump and her before and after plastic surgery. And this is all part of this like long sort of meandering essay that he writes to make this point that we're, we now like are sort of happy to have new appendages and like remake ourselves, remodel ourselves. I'm thinking about it a little bit differently. The last term that I think has really stuck and has some real currency that maybe was generated from within the art world and by critics and writers was post-internet art. And there was a lot of back and forth over who said it first. Was it Marissa Olsen? Was it so-and-so? And I mean, a lot of the ideas were not new to those critics and writers, but like the kind of coining of the term and trying to summarize what it was as a trend or a tendency. That, I think, we're still figuring it out and sort of talking through it. Where Boreo's alter modern sank like a stone you know yeah, yeah, yeah. he like proposed yeah, totally. it and we and post-humanism absolutely i mean i think happy to give deitch credit for like popularizing the term within the art world we haven't finished and we haven't even really started the discussion of why is figuration back so strongly in my estimation it's just the the pendulum has swung really far into like zombie abstraction and it swung back now fully into well but this is new recent history you know like the these are sort of art world trends that i mean right now we're talking about a pendulum swing that Mm. like took place in the last five years and like had swung the other way in the previous five Mm -hmm. years like we're talking 2000 10 to 2020 basically like we're full-on figuration swing Mm -hmm. coming back from full-on zombie (laughs) abstraction (laughs) yeah the pendulum swing into figuration also it's a better fit if we're talking about identity-based work and I guess to kind of maybe move it along a little bit, speaking of <laughs> Yeah, we artists, really got sidetracked. <laughs> yeah, we, in more somber news, Robert Indiana passed away, the artist best known for his iconic four-letter word image of love. Unfortunately, sort of love is now dead. And I think what I've never been a huge fan of Robert Indiana's work. I basically know of him through that singular image and then sort of endless variations on it. But one of the things that sort of bubbled up after his passing is the sort of weird status of the artist's intellectual property. Apparently it is owned by uh, some sort of corporation that exists Oh yeah, some, yeah. And I'm not going to go into the weeds on this, but I think if you're interested in learning more, Kristen Capps has written about it in, in City Lab. And you can Google who owns love. And And do the deep dive. In other uh, obituary news, Jeffrey Hendricks died at the age of 86. He was a longtime Flexus artist and of particular importance to me because um, he was a teacher at Rutgers where I happened to graduate. So a lot of my classmates took classes from him. He offered a Fluxus art making class. And I think pretty much anybody who ever has done performance and went to Rutgers around that time, which my time was 1999 to 2001, but he was there a lot longer after and before, has been influenced by him. I cannot claim the same influence. I never took his class. I always knew I hated Fluxus art. It was not something I really felt I needed to participate And now I regret it a little bit, but mostly because my interest in performance art has really surged over the last little while. So Mm. I feel like I probably wrote his experience off a little too easily. None of these artists have died, but there was recently a show of the Hunter College color artists in New Jersey. And I probably was a knee-jerk tweet, but I said something like, oh, these were the professors at Hunter that I avoided. And, you know, a fellow Hunter alumni was like, your loss. Apparently, this includes like Bob Swain, who apparently is a wonderful teacher. Yeah, I heard that, actually. I did not sign up to go to Hunter to make modernist grids, minutia, <laughs> right. color changes, just wasn't what I wanted to do, you know, at all. And maybe I missed out. I did get to sit in on numerous critiques uh, with many of the professors like Sandy Wormfeld while they were tearing apart somebody else, you know, <laughs> saying things like, I, I don't know what that content means you're talking about, but I'm really interested in these colors right here. And I thought that's definitely not what I wanted out of grad school. But I, I, I feel like I may have at least missed out. So I I sympathize that maybe you um, didn't get the full Jeffrey Hendricks experience. No, but he he was uh, well-loved and will be missed. That's probably 
invitation to talk about some living artists, right? And uh, recent auction records. It was it was auction week last week. So the secondary market, which yeah. is uh, art that has come up for resale, basically the billion dollar week in New York, when ah, the billion right. dollars of artwork changes hands. So I think the main story was artist Carrie James Marshall's record-setting twenty-one million dollar sale of a painting to. Sean Combs. Right, which is a record for a living black artist. Another arts writer. At Bloomberg. Yeah. So the Bloomberg arts writer, you know, tweets out that Carrie James Marshall has set this record at $21 million. And our mutual friend, Felix Salmon, tries to actually her by saying, what about Chris Wolf? Which Who is not a black artist. He is not a black artist. And uh, within seconds, Greg Allen says, wait, what? And leads to a whole discussion that uh, reveals that Felix, you know, had the impression, uh, based on some set of assumptions that we may discuss sooner or later on an upcoming episode of Explain Me, that somehow he'd gotten to decide that Christopher Wool was a black artist. Anyway. Anyway, um, well... <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. It just was a little bit wild that, you know, you know when you're trying to actually someone, you usually want to be right about that on some level. <laughs> But he was wrong in a kind of spectacularly funny way. A friend of mine DM'd me the conversation, which I was actually sort of following already because somehow I'd been at replied. But like, I. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was like, I think we've got our talk. I think we've got to talk uh, uh, about uh, this. Yeah. And she was just like, wow, that's so rude to like correct somebody like that and not even do a Google search to find out. But I I guess I also was just like, well, sometimes you just think you know. It doesn't even occur to you that you don't know. But that is a very... I mean, that's why the well actually... What did somebody describe it? Like an actually as a flock of men, you know, sort of like (laughs) a gaggle of men responding to a tweet. Oh my God. Who is this person and where can I meet them there? That is the <laughs> most brilliant thing ever. I will have to dig it up because I, I, I think it is really important about that just like supreme confidence of somebody saying, well, actually, what about Christopher Wool? And it's like, not a black artist, you know? Actually, that's about the whitest guy I can imagine, but um, to be to be discussed. You know, there, there, another point to, to the sale around Carrie James Marshall is that it was met with a lot of cheering. There were a lot of people who were celebrating, let's say, an important important sociological marker for African-American artists or black artists, that they have achieved new records for living artists, and that this is like a very good thing. But that was also quickly followed by some criticism, or at least some thoughts by Antoine Sargent and Kimberly Drew, to let the public know that while they're cheering, Kerry James Marshall does not benefit from this sale directly, meaning he'll, he won't see any of that $21 million that whoever sold the painting received from Puff Daddy, from Sean Combs. Yeah, like, so some white guy probably... So somebody made $21 million, and it was not Carrie James Marshall. And in fact, you know, U.S. artists currently do not receive any resale royalty from secondary market sales of any of their work. So it does sort of temper that. It's not like Carrie James Marshall just got $21 million. And the the other side of that is the five lots that led up to the sale of the Carrie James Marshall were all being sold to benefit the Studio Museum of Harlem. And so these were works donated by artists like Glenn Ligon and Julie Moretto. And all of the proceeds, like 90% of the proceeds of those sales were going to the Studio Museum of Harlem. Apparently it raised millions of dollars. So here's a question. I didn't see this, but did anybody else other than Antoine and um, Kim point out that Carrie James Marshall would not see a penny from the sale? I didn't see too many other people tweeting it, but I thought that they are very vocal and well-followed members of the art community. Sometimes it seems like the African-American voices have to do a lot of work on behalf of other African-American artists, like in, in a way that outsizes. You know, this is something that most art professionals will know, that the artists don't receive resale royalties. So, like, I kind of feel like, you know, we should all be talking about this. Well, what I noticed from watching the sale happen in real time and watching the usual arts writers cover it. There was a loud cheering, like, we just, we, they're included in this, we just set a new record for a living African-American artist. This feels so good. Yay, us. And I can appreciate that. And that was where almost all the coverage stopped. 
Mm. The next level, and very few people tweeted this, was that Carrie James Marshall is not benefiting this. And in fact, this is a condition that all U.S. artists have to deal with. If your work is sold in the United States, you aren't going to see a penny. If it's sold in Europe, you might get 10% of that sale. It was kind of jarring because right before this record-setting sale, you have five pieces donated by artists that are going to entirely to support a great institution. Of course, I've been tweeting and yelling about resale royalties for five or six years or even longer. You know, I wrote a piece for the Brooklyn Rail. I've covered the artist resale app. Yeah, we, you know, we ran like, a lot of pieces yeah, on been, AFC about it as it's, well. It's just not sexy. Yeah. I it, mean... No one feels good about it. It's just like, I feel it constantly. We're just reminding people that the system is broken and doesn't really benefit artists and da Yeah, because nobody wants to pass yeah. it in Congress. It's like, yeah. it's just a dead thing. I will say, though, to be fair, that it's not like the auction sale is going to hurt Gary James Marshall's income. Like he, these prices do help primary market prices. Yeah, that in was in the same way that they can hurt them if the price falls. Yes, I think that was a question that like a gallery raised almost immediately after it was revealed that you know Sean Combs was the buyer of the painting. Um, they were like, we're very curious what you're going to do with the painting and what your next moves will be. Do you want to come buy from us? You know, like right. buy one that maybe some of the money will go to Carrie James Marshall. But there was a, a sort of curious thing happened right after, shortly after the Carrie James Marshall sale, which again was none of that proceeds would go to the Studio Museum of Harlem. And then right, the, the Carrie James Marshall sale. And then an artist that you know better than I, Avery Singer, had a work come up for auction. And Avery's previous auction record was $39,500. And she had a painting sell for $600,000, which based on my math was a 1,419% increase between her previous auction record and the $600,000 sale, which is kind of crazy. It is an insane jump that I think one of the only other artists that I know of that happened to and really changed the course of his career was Matthew Dejack. Jackson, who had a piece that had like maybe an $80,000. It had a relatively low estimate at auction and it went for some insane number and he had to leave his gallery. Like Joseph, he, that happened to Joseph Cassie, Cassie as yeah, well, remember? Cassie, I mean, it was sort of amazing it what was, happened with Cassie. Cassie is an artist who is almost defined by that auction sale in a right. way that's not super helpful. Where Matthew Day Jackson left his gallery, I can't remember who he was showing was, like uh, maybe it was Perry Rubenstein or something, had this huge auction increase. The show that he was supposed to have was sort of like postponed. And then he ended up moving to Hauser and Worth because he needed a gallery that could actually support the new primary market price point that his work was going to fetch. And it ended up being like not the best show in the world when he debuted at Hauser and Worth, sort of like a terrible show, sort of. I don't reviewed. think it was terrible, but... You are... <laughs> there was some good work in the show, and there was some stuff that was dreck. I mean, it looked like Madame Tussaud, you know, House of Wax. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to go to bat for, like, all the work in the show. I think that there's definitely some things that failed, but, like, I really believe that there was... Basically, House of Worth was in that terrible space like Mm -hmm. the old Roxy roller rink at the time and like I had never seen a show that looked good in that space it was simply too big the only show I've ever seen in that space that looked good was Mark Bradford Ronnie Horn had a nice show oh I missed I missed that show but okay (laughs) so but like I would say by and large like artists failed in that space because it was too big and like to pull off the sort of manufacturing um, and sort of business requirements and a certain like the production requirements to even fill that space I think was like probably too big a a jump for an artist like that so I I agree with you he's a great artist but I think that that space did not serve him well and he couldn't he couldn't pare down the work well and I I agree with you and I think what precipitated that to a large degree is this kind of crazy auction figure where suddenly you're an artist doing one thing at a certain price point and scale and there's a comfort level and then you know jacking up the price to this kind of crazy level there's a sense that not only did he have to fill that space at Hauser and Worth he was an artist whose work had to be a certain scale that, that sort of had to meet its like expectation of this kind of crazy price point, like bigger and better. And in fact, it just didn't serve his work well. And so I, I, I say this with brought it up 
as a sort of point of caution that, you know, we could look at Avery Singer's price point and cheer and say, here's a female artist who's, you know, got a $600,000 sale under her belt. It's going to make her primary market prices go up. But I, I would be cautious, you know, like, She's going to have to sit down with Gavin Brown and decide how much do we raise the prices for my paintings? Do the paintings have to get bigger and crazier and more elaborate? Do we have to build out huge installations to fill? Or is she even going to stay with Gavin Brown? Is she fielding calls right now from like Zwerner and Gagosian and like Gladstone saying, we really want to help you fulfill your vision, Avery? Is Gladstone even a step up from Gavin Brown at this point? I would I say so. No. I mean, what has Gavin got right now? He's got the Lower Tons East Side of space. space. And I haven't been up to uh-huh. Harlem to see it. I've sort of not wanted to participate <laughs> in the Well, Harlem. anyway, the thing about Avery, I think, is that it seems like this is coming out of nowhere. But I guess my feeling on it, and I, I mean, I don't know what the work has been selling for behind the scenes, but I do know that from my own experience sort of behind the scenes is that I had, because she had sort of in the early days had commented on the blog and I knew her, mm-hmm. there were gallerists who knew that I knew her. And there were a number of people who were looking for introductions to her. And at that time, it was already sort of known that she had been flirting with moving to Gavin Brown. But mm-hmm. like, There was a lot of collector attention prior to her ever even having a show. And I don't really know how that stuff sort of works behind the scenes, but I have the sense that there's like a big, a bigger demand for this than one show at Gavin Brown really would show. I think there's a lot more happening. Well, yeah, that was that was a, that was a, a joke by Sarah Greenberger Rafferty, who tweeted something like, "Shows at Gavin Brown once." You know, and then someone, uh, Pamela Council, another artist, sort of jumped in and said, "You know, good for her. She got her six hundred thousand or something." And then, and then shortly after that, was like, "Wait." She doesn't get any of that money, does she? (laughs) 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 And we're like, well, welcome to the conversation. You know, this is how it's. Yeah, no, that's true. Just to put it into perspective, like when Jacob Casse's work rocketed up to like $80,000 in auction. And this this was a $600,000. Well, hold on. (laughs) Let's just like. Our show is Explain Me. We've done a terrible job of explaining things. So just to back up a little bit, Jacob Cassie's work sold, I think, at auction. It was a benefit auction for the kitchen in 2009 for $80,000. Maybe it was 2008. At that point, Lindsay Pollock, who was a reporter for Bloomberg at the time, but also had her own blog, wrote a post that was just like, who is diddling with Jacob Cassie's prices? Because his work skyrocketed from like $6,000 to $80,000, and it was crazy. It was in the matter of months. So so that's what, what happened with him, and he's still showing at... I remember seeing his work at the ADAA like a couple years ago. It seemed like he was... Let's just say he is maybe not making monochrome silver plated canvases anymore. No, but like the things I saw were like, they were like gray stretched something or other, like not exactly paintings, but in the side they had like sort of carved out like fuck yous to collectors and things like that. And I was just like, this clearly is an artist who like was pushed into this like weird blue chip world without really having a chance to develop his voice. Exactly. I think Avery Singer is a very different artist. And I saw the Art 21 close up of her, where she sort of talks about her process, how she models the paintings in a 3D modeling program, and then sort of projects them onto the canvas and tapes it out and doesn't kind of airbrush, you know, sort of technique. And another person who saw the whole thing sort of happening in real time uh, in terms of the auction was Sharon Butler, who was like, oh, now I remember where I saw her work. She was in the new museum's um, triennial triennial surround audience along with... And that was in 2015. Yeah, yeah. So that was curated by Ryan Tricardin. Right. 
and Lauren Cornell. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if you have the support of Ryan Tricartan, especially, that probably means something. Yes. And there were a lot of artists who are in that show. And I'm thinking about, there was another painter whose name I'm forgetting, who does really intensely, shows at Foxy Productions with like, there's kind of surreal paintings of heads that are all patterned. Oh, the sci-fi artist. Yeah. Uh, who had a, a ret, like a mini retrospective at PS1. at PS1. Yeah. Who is that? What is that artist's name? Oh my God. Right? So explain <laughs> me, listeners. Uh, you can use all that information to Google. Maybe we should Google. But I guess my point is that that artist, that artist I don't think has had the same kind of auction success as Avery. I don't think that artist's price points are at the sort of same place. But they were in the same, you know, exhibition at the New Museum. That artist had the PS1 sort of mini retrospective. Jerry Saltz loves those paintings. The thing with Avery, it's just so curious, is like, that is an incredible jump from a $39,000 auction record to $600,000. And it just is sort of stunning. When people try to figure out how the art world works, it's why it's really hard to explain pricing or that there's any kind of rational system behind it. I mean, it takes at least two crazy people to get up that high, right? Because yeah. you have to have some bidding against these <laughs> you need each other. Under <laughs> so, Which, I, um, I'm just it's it kind of blew my mind. I know I, I hate to harp on it. I just just I don't get it. The person <laughs> we were talking about before, <laughs> Sasha Brunig, yeah. is the person who is the sci-fi artist with the show, at, who shows at Foxy. And and I have to say, I, I prefer Sasha's paintings a great to Avery's. Because there's another artist who shows at uh, James Cohan, who's been doing these kind of 3D boxy painting characters in space for a long time, Mehmet Larson or something. Uh-huh. And no, $600,000. And Mehmet's been doing this for, you know, decades. I think there's just like a level of there is some there is some level of like you know who can explain why one artist becomes this like sort of focal point I'm not sure I, I I can explain that although I will say that by and large most people's work sells for what you would think it would sell for like have you ever been like super surprised by uh, uh, the price point that your work has sold for in a super good way uh no um when I think of like art prices in general, I just I still can't rationalize them, even my own work. And I just had a piece that went to a Christie's online only auction, and it sold for like twenty seven hundred dollars. Think I know who it sold to, but I can't confirm it, so I shouldn't say. But basically, they got it for half the retail price. I wouldn't sell it at auction, and it should, in some way, hurt my primary market price. Somebody who's looking at auction prices should go maybe I shouldn't pay $6,000 for a drawing if I can buy one at auction for $3,000. So I'm, I'm on the other end of the Avery spectrum right now in terms of auctions. Just to push back on that a little bit, I mean, I understand the rationale and that's why, and people actually think that way, so that's why people get nervous about it. But by the, by the same token, like, you don't have your pick of the works when you are just picking up something at auction. You have what somebody is reselling, you don't have, I mean, I think one of the things that people talk about is like the sort of concept of love and like how people hold on to artwork that they really love. If we can get Felix in here, I think we have a lot to discuss with Felix beyond Christopher Wool's uh, racial identity. He wrote a piece about the difference between selling an $8 million piece and like a $30 million piece or buying that. And he's like, one you do for love and the other you, you buy because you want a trophy. And so there's um, a $22 million price gap between love and trophy. <laughs> I mean, at that amount, like I can't, I just don't, you know, I like I, I, I can't even fathom that amount of money. It's, right. I think it's a little too much for me to wrap my head around. You know, just going back to that, for, uh, the particular auction we were talking about, though, mm -hmm. the Studio Museum of Harlem and the five lots at auction that, that were donated. I wanted to say that there are like three artists that sold for the same amount of money. Titus Kafar, Jordan Castile, and Derek Adams all sold for... $81,250, which was super above their reserve. I think that Derek Adams had the largest reserve and I, maybe Jordan had the lowest, but it, it was like somewhere Jordan's was like maybe 10 or 12 or something like that. Derek, it was like 20 or 30. So they all sold super above that. But the fact that they all sold for the same amount 
to me suggests that the bids were pre-placed and like the works were sort of pre-sold. And so the auction was really sort of about raising awareness for the uh, organization and getting a lot of these like price points in the newspapers in a, in a way that hopefully, I don't know whether artists, well, because this is a um, charity auction, usually people understand that the amount that it sells for is not the actual amount that it's worth. So I think that we should consider that both with Avery and with, you know, Titus, Jordan, and Derek, like their prices, this is money that is going to an organization. And the reason that people are bidding on this is different, is at least in theory, different. So, I mean, are you suggesting that Titus Jordan and Derek's work was sort of inflated because it was part of the, the benefit auction for Absolutely. the studio? Yeah. But Avery was not part of that benefit. Oh, no. So, oh, that's right. Sorry, yeah. I'm getting things confused. Right. Just to be fair, listeners, this is all happening in the same auction. You have five artists who are being presented as part of an auction that includes Avery Singer and Carrie James Marshall. And those first five were all the money was going to the Studio Museum of Harlem. And these were donations by the artists. And that is interesting. I didn't I didn't notice that those three artists work all went for the same price, which definitely seems like maybe it was one buyer or that was just the minimum reserve price for that work. It wasn't the minimum reserve. Okay. What I was saying was that it that went for well over the minimum reserve, but it went for exactly the same amount, which mm-hmm. suggests to me at least that they had pre-placed bids and a buyer at were there, some were, X amount. It is really interesting and sort of um, confusing. And that's also another thing that Felix Salmon wrote about this week was guaranteed bids, you know, that, that people can place before the auction uh, even happens and that they often get a kind of kickback from the auction house for making a gar- guaranteed bid and having like a basically a pre-sale. That, and, and if it goes above that price, the guarantor gets part of that like over it, you know, some percentage of the sale uh, that goes beyond what they were willing to pay for the minimum. Right. Which, you know, just points out the, the kind of opacity of how these, the system works. We don't really totally understand it ourselves. No, I think people who are really deep in it try to get a sense of who is, who are the guarantors and who's doing what, but you got to be swimming in it. Yeah, you really have to know. And the auction houses do not have to disclose who's buying and selling these things. To maybe wrap up the podcast this week, we did want to talk about a couple of shows. Yeah. Uh, One that you sent me to, which I blame you for. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Which I I would nominate potentially as one of the worst arts of 2018, but I, I'd like to turn it over to you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, the mystery show we're talking about is Doug Aiken's New Era, Era at 303 Gallery. This is a terrible, terrible show. I, I don't think it's one of the worst shows of 2018. I think it is the worst show. It's the kind of show that, in my opinion, should kill an artist's career and Let's be honest, Aikens deserved to die a long time ago. So for years, he's been producing these kind of like cheese ball art videos that tend to valorize the uh, white male genius. So we saw that with, uh, what was it called, Zadell or something like that, which was the, it was um, the soccer star. And it was just shots of his face, mm-hmm. gratuitous shots of his face while he looked at a soccer ball. <laughs> This one is called New Error, not Error, Era. It could be called New Error. <laughs> yeah. Most Recent Error by Doug Aiken. <laughs> and this is just, I think, the worst version of this. It's a loop in which we see shots of an old cell phone interspersed with clips of Martin Cooper explaining that with a team of researchers in 1973, he created the first cellular telephone. So you see this giant Motorola's his cell phone and and a lot of like sort of blackness around it and like a silhouette of him in a cave and the peak moment in the narrative is when he describes the day the world changed i made a phone call he says and then the video just like splinters into like fractal like imagery of like circuit boards cell phones even the cell phone keypad breaking into yeah 
It's just like, and and like, this is to the, it turns into an electronic dance party. It is by far the worst. It's a dance party for 12-year-olds. It's so, the worst show I've ever seen. And I will say that there's no mention of Heidi Lamar, who is a famous actor in the 1930s to 50s, who laid the groundwork for Bluetooth technology. This is a woman who's sort of, I think, like a cult-like figure. Yeah. And if you wanted to really highlight somebody of importance, why not choose a woman, for God's <laughs> sakes? I can maybe top your experience with the video in terms of how bad this video is in terms of celebrating white male genius for connecting the world. In its best case scenario, it could be seen as a kind of critique of the alignment of some spiritual values of the hippies on the West Coast and like Silicon Valley entrepreneurial spirit or something, like some weird take on the California ideology. Clearly this like video it, is not that. It I looks mean, like it was made for a Silicon Valley dude. Right. So. Yeah, yeah. It's not a critical perspective at all. This is just like celebratory, masturbatory bullshit. So when I go to the see the video, right, and I'm standing in the room ready to claw my eyes out, <laughs> in walks Philip Vergne. I don't even know how you pronounce this guy's name, but like the curator. The curator. So he comes in with his... LACMA, right? Yeah. Or maybe the director now. Mocha? He's at Mocha. Uh, Mocha. Yeah, L.A. Mocha. Mocha, So he comes in, he's got his hair sweeping back. He looks like a slightly more handsome Gary Oldman. And he kind of is standing there in a suit. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, who is this guy? You know, like he could just be a substitute for the guy in the video. Anyway, he's standing there. And I think Doug Aiken walks in and is like taking photos of Philip Vergne in front of his video. It was just like (laughs) layering of, of... male ego, you know, and I'm taking Instagram of, you know, like the artist photographing the star museum director in front of his piece. And all I can hear in my back in the background is that 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 inane guy saying, I made a phone call, you know, with the fucking techno this soundtrack. This is like a horror show for oh like my the God. art world. I got it all like in, in one place. In one echo, yeah. like a giant echo chamber. It was chamber. a giant echo chamber. I think, you know, the last time I encountered Doug Aiken's work, it was in uh, Washington, D.C. when he had a video projected on the Hirshhorn. And I was with Kristen Capps and Greg Allen and Kristen's like, what do you think of this video? And I'm like, it's like a video of the United Colors of Benetton. I mean, it was just so sort of pat and kind of cheesy. This was much worse. There was at least a little bit more narrative thrust or something happening with the piece in DC at the Hirshhorn. This was really bad. I mean, the other thing I will say is like, you know, this, like I said at the beginning, like this is the kind of show that like, I think should kill an artist's career or at least hurt them for a couple years. And like, there hasn't been one negative review like that I've seen. Like, and I'm just like, is that basically because like the staff critics at the times are mostly covering museum shows and then we have Jerry Saltz, who's like only one person. I don't think bad press can effectively kill off an artist like Doug Aiken. I was just also reminded that Dan Colon still exists. Somebody just tweeted out that like a review of his work that, you know, he's churning on, like his career churns on. His show was reviewed universally, negatively in like 2010 or whenever it was, you know, his show at Gagosian. But he had to feel the effects of that, right? No, no, not at all. They just sent him on a world tour. He went and showed like around the world at different Gagosian outposts and came back. And his show of like abstraction based on Disney cartoons, Fantasia, was not panned. It wasn't really written. It just, you know, sort of noted. And he still is doing fine. And but has that's a crazy, though, because like Matt Jackson, like he suffered from all those negative reviews that he got. I think he's bounced back, obviously. But I feel like press has to have some impact. Well, I, I would even say there's a distinction to be made. Um, Matthew Day Jackson, there were people that like were like, there are some missteps in the show at Hauser and Worth. There's some good work in it and there's some bad work. Well, it just this- wasn't the show people wanted i think well yeah and i mean with colin there was no like boy there's some good work in here they were like this is terrible across the board every critic critics saw each other in the streets and brought other critics to see how bad it was yeah no i mean i guess this is sort of where i'm going with this too though is where like according to this narrative like dan colin like didn't feel a thing financially for producing 
what was essentially garbage, like the show that he had with, I mean, I think there was like That was a the worst show, show of the year. He, I mean, that might well, have been the worst show of the, of the decade. Or the decade. Yeah, because know? I mean, there was a, what was there? There was a show, there was a painting made out of bubble gum. It was like an abstract bubble gum painting. There was a line of motorcycles yeah. that had just been tipped over. Yeah, and this was 2010. So this may be the capstone of the aughts, like worst yeah. show of the decade, right at the end of the decade. Yeah, it was just super, super terrible. Uh, I think there was also like a sort of skateboard yeah, something there was or other. like a skate park in there upside yeah. down you know oh, defun- yeah. defunctionalized skate park that was like a great example of i think excess like i mean he was also somebody who was sort of known in the drug scene he disappointed everyone with that show there was like <laughs> i don't even think the drug scene kids could have enjoyed that i know <laughs> <laughs> It just symbolized everything that was sort of wrong with the art world. And like, I think there was one or two people who I met who was like, well, I went to art school with him. He he actually thought about art, like was, you know, into it. And I thought, well, how could he possibly care about it if he produced this show? You know, <laughs> but in any event, because you I mean, you almost have to like be outside of the art world to produce something that bad. Yeah, it still remains a mystery to me. I so, mean, his origin story is fantastic. We don't have to go into it, but, but it's in like a, yeah, cocaine in the bath. Right. But in any event, like, you know, Matthew Jackson was like, is different because like, you won't need another artist who cares as much as, as Matt does. I mean, he like, he's in it. Yeah. Forever. Yeah. I don't know how Doug Aiken feels about art. I guess my point is that if there's no negative reviews, you know, we're adding to this, like we're putting out here that he's made one of the worst shows of 2018. So hopefully the worst show of 2018. So hopefully that will have some impact. But I think what might be more damaging or at least hurt his ego more is no press. He should be used to it by now. I mean, like the um, last, did anybody cover the last show? I don't know. See? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not sure. And this goes back to my social, like the whole thing that kicked off this discussion. Are we helping Doug Aiken by pointing out how terrible his show is? Or are we going to do what criticism is supposed to do? And that's negatively impact the value of his work. He is not Donald Trump. But he's made he's made a video that effectively <laughs> celebrates the just in a much more banal way, the lone genius, the male genius, all of these things that are just like our culture could do with a lot less of less Elon Elon Musk. OK, well, let, let me ask you this. Are we going to go so far as to say that this art somehow hurts all art, like in the same way, I think Andrew Russith made this argument for the public art sculpture that's uh, currently being installed. Oh, the trilobite. Uh, yeah, on the on the west the side. The rat maze. That the... looks. It is. It looks exactly <laughs> like a rat maze or like an upside down uh, honeycomb <laughs> beehive that people are just supposed to walk up and down the stairs because it's for uh, like it's cool for some well, undisclosed know, reason. The artist actually said it looked like a, a garbage can. Yeah, it, it looks like a it garbage does. can. You know, it could be a, a, a useful thing for people to do while they wait in line to go to the shed performances. Like, <laughs> which we, I don't think we'll talk about it today, but uh, Ben Davis had an interesting take on the shed as a sort of outmoded representation of a kind of like utopian idea of art from some other era that no longer exists. Yeah, hmm. that, that. Well, I, to, the, to the main question, will Doug Aiken's work hurt art in like existentially? Well, Probably yes, not. We started this show. By talking about, what's his name? Jordan Peterson. Did Jordan he deserve Peterson. a profile in the New York Times? It's, right. Are his and ideas like, so dangerous or important that they warrant personality profile, basically? Right. And our argument was like, actually, these ideas are dangerous and corrosive to society. And like, it's actually better to just not give them any kind of platform whatsoever. Or uh, I don't know if I, I went... See, that's where I'm not even sure yet. What I think after reading the piece on Peterson, I would like a much stronger critique of his ideas that we think are dangerous because I don't think it's overstated or clearly articulated enough in the piece how misogynistic and reactionary and awful for women um, Peterson's ideas are. Right. Even from a reporting standpoint where you could... Even from the reporter or the voices she chose to speak. Exactly you know, back to Peterson's ideas. So I think we've done a fairly solid job of 
condemning the hell out of uh, Doug Aiken's sort of vapid piece. I mean, it's just hard to explain in words how awful of an experience it is. Yeah. I So I guess to try a, attempt to answer my own question, I don't think it actually hurts art, but I do think that his practice is like sort of painfully unself-aware. And if there were anything that would cause him to reflect just a tiny bit on the subjects he chooses and why, that would be a good thing. Yeah. So hopefully uh, somebody will forward this segment of our podcast to Doug Aiken, just chop out this section and send it to him so that he can hear it. That's a little love letter from us. Yeah. I don't know if there was um, some other artwork that we wanted to counterbalance. <laughs> yeah, there was, there was definitely. So, I mean, one thing, I went to Open Engage, Engagement, which uh, is the social practice conference that ran for three days over the weekend in May. And it's the last one that's going to run because I think the organizers uh, are artists themselves and just got tired of it, like organizing it. It's an enormous amount of work. Well, I, it's too much to see everything at that conference, um, so I just didn't even bother trying with that. I, I went and I saw the Queens Museum Studios, and uh, Ander Mc, McAllison was somebody who stood out to me. Um, she was uh, she had like a number of prints on the wall, but they were prints that were basically like uh, sort of maps that a marching band could follow. And what she had done for this piece, which was called Number One Hit, was that she had paired Billboard top 10 songs for the corresponding year that four selected artworks at uh, Storm King had when they had been made. So I'm trying to remember what she paired with the Myelin Waves piece, Mm. but there was... There was something with that, and I think she used Rihanna Peace for something, and they were just really kind of, they looked really kind of smart and the kind of thing you'd want to engage in and, like, want to be present for. So you could see how, like, the music would would activate the sculptures and uh, the, the marching band would... And certainly at Storm King, I think that would definitely uh, bring in a different audience uh, than they might usually get. Yeah. So the other thing I did um, was uh, I went to the Melchin. I saw the Melchin exhibition and I saw the Melchin talk. And the Melchin talk I live tweeted. So um, anybody who wants to look at the tweets can uh, just sort of scroll down my feed. And I think I use the hashtag open engagement 2018. So you can find it. I saw some of those. But he, I mean, he was just like this incredibly engaging speaker. Like there, anytime there were tech problems, he made jokes and like in a way that was not hackneyed or anything. He, and he talked about his projects. And I, I think like one sort of quote that really stuck out for me um, was, uh, you know, without getting too much into his work, was that he said that projects are about self-transformation. It's not about changing the world, which is funny because he followed it up by pieces that you could actually imagine changing the world (laughs) in some way. So... I mean, I think I remember you tweeting that and then being sort of critical of that statement that, you know, I think it's sort of like a defensive position almost for uh, an artist engaging in social practice or even any kind of art to just first say it's about self-transformation. It's about me. It's about my experience or the transformation of the audience member. But we're going to distance it from actual like changing the world or an implied use or an implied utility. I mean, it's almost like the difference between relational aesthetics and social practice for me that there is an expectation with social practice that it might change the world or it could. I feel like, you know, just that statement that Mel made was about like a kind of prefacing, you know, a kind of like art really isn't about that utility of like changing. First, it's always about like the artist's self-expression or something. Right. Well, I mean, I think that's sort of a fair starting point because I, I think if you go out there like expecting to change the world, that naivete may not work in your best interest. Mm-hmm. But he talked about working with somebody who was working with like solar energy and like uh, like Western Sudan or something like that and like being able to create greenhouse houses that would uh, help uh, grow food that the like if people in Algeria could trade and use and eat. Yeah, like, that, 
that, all that the rest. Sounds like, like that sounds like it's like changing, changing the world. And yeah, you use, it's like a whole economy that you're yeah, building. You use the phrase to help. Like it, it demonstrably does something to help a situation. And that is something I still think art is sort of allergic to when you ascribe an action verb that it could do something like specifically to help. That is still something that we're like, mm, I don't know, art isn't like that. Well, I mean, I will know that when I sort of came out of school, I was really skeptical of that kind of approach to art making like I kind of felt like history was supposed to do the job for us like you know we would make the art history would decide Mm -hmm. blah 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 and maybe that's what you are taught in art school but like the reality of it is I I think should be a little different yeah and I, I do think that you know if art isn't supposed to change the world another way of thinking about it the way it's taught that at least it's supposed to change art you know that it's supposed to challenge art and change yeah. the terms of yeah, art. yeah exactly um, it might not have to change the world because that would might get associated with social justice do-gooding or you know these other things that I think there's part of the art world and certainly a certain value system that is resistant to the idea that art should actually change society because it, it might get a little too close to a revolutionary idea. We are going to change how much money you have. You know? Right, which... <laughs> collectors tend to love that idea. Yeah, they don't like that at all. Yeah, I, I got a tweet back today from somebody that was like pictures of, of the Soviet Union and I'm like, oh, this guy's like Jordan Peterson, you know, like who apparently keeps a lot of social realist artwork from communist Russia in his apartment to remind himself of the danger of collectivity. And it's like, sweet Jesus, the all collectivity or all collective action is immediately reduced to Stalinism, you know, or wow. like one historical example of communism. Anyway, um, I did not go to open engagement. I sort of knew it was happening. I just couldn't bring myself to spend uh, a long weekend talking about social practice <laughs> again. Um, <laughs> Having done, you know, a couple of socially engaged projects, it is it is super challenging work and it's I probably should have gone to open engagement. I just couldn't bring myself. I think that's fair. I I definitely had that uh sense of dread myself <laughs> going to it. Oh, but I forced I myself there and there were some good things. I hope that, you know, the thing about that art brings to socially engaged any kind of activism or work that wants to change is that it, it actually gets people out and overcomes some of the feelings of you're going to work, that there's something enjoyable about it that can engage audiences. I would just want to say a couple of things that I saw over the last month or so that actually make me like art and not hate it. Excellent. Uh, were uh, Jacoby Satterwhite's video installation and kind of art merch store at Gavin Brown's Lower East Side Space. It's an amazing, you know, long video uh, produced with like 3D animation software and Jacoby's dancing with artists and rappers. And it's basically a kind of like free floating universe constructed around drawings and um, the songs that his mother would sing. And when I was listening to the soundtrack, at first I thought, here's an artist who who's worked with another musician and appropriated something that I should know and borrowing someone else's art. But reading the press release, they were all acapella uh, songs sung by the artist's mother. That Then he worked with uh, another musician to create the soundtrack for the video. And it was just incredibly kind of like a kind of moving piece of information to understand what you're listening to and how it relates to the drawings and all of the objects that Jacoby created. Um, so it was one of the better shows that I, I saw and have still been thinking about. Another show that I just saw that I really enjoyed is uh, it's, it's a show that present company in Bushwick and the two artists whose work I was really interested in were Sarah Bednarek sculptures which are sort of presented on a central platform in the middle of the gallery and they're sort of geometric forms that have are sitting on sort of wooden pedestal boxes. And they're kind of strange forms that allude to other things, whether they're food or people's faces, but they're really beautifully executed. And having seen Sarah's work over the last few years in Bushwick, it seems like a major step for the artist. And uh, Peter Ostofsky is also presenting sort of large-scale paintings based on an ongoing graphic novel comic book series that he's been working on that is about a kind of some sort of dystopian future. So his interest in sci-fi and painting are sort of coming together in this new series of work. And I really recommend that show. The show uh, is called On Human Limits, and it's Sarah Bednarek, James Boucher, Derek Karner, Peter Rostovsky, and it's uh, on through June 17th at 
Excellent. And I guess one of the, the shows that I, I actually hadn't mentioned, but I did see recently, uh, was uh, painted in Mexico at the Met, which I think is, it's kind of hilarious, actually. Mm. Um, and I recommend it to everyone. It's not one of their larger shows. There's like, I guess, like 110 paintings primarily. And it's uh, work from the 1700s to 1790. And it's it's work that sort of been inspired by uh, the Spanish world, but the compositions of these paintings are almost uniquely strange. It's like a, in a lot of them, it's like they use they you can sort of see the grid that they're using, um, and it looks like maybe there's like four columns wide and like five columns or five rows down or something, and like. You can see that like, okay, I'm going to place the flower vase in this corner and the table in this corner. And then I'm going to divide the entire piece in half. And like the other half is the top half is going to be all clouds plus a whole bunch of angels because I've seen (laughs) El Greco or somebody who saw El Greco once and now I'm painting this. So the whole like thing and they're just these deeply like sort of very kind of structurally there's like a very visible structure underlying structure to the paintings that uh, are very religious in nature and deeply strange like tons of roses everywhere like martyrs who have uh, been been killed with, with like strangely placed crosses like cherubs that every cherub you've ever seen is painted weirdly to begin with these things it's super strange like weird proportions often there will be like hundreds of them in the clouds they're like flies or something you know <laughs> anyway the whole exhibition is like nothing i'd ever seen they're not a lot of times i would not call the the paintings great but certainly the most interesting things i've seen in a while What's the show called again? What's the title of it? It's at the Met. Uh, it's just called Painted in Mexico, okay. 1700 to, to 1790. Wow. Okay. Because uh, I definitely want to go to the Met and see Humababa's totally weird sculptures on the roof of the Met. That is uh, a destination, I think, at least, if not this weekend, next in the next week. I want to go see that. So I'll have to add the show Painted in Mexico to our yeah, trip Yeah, definitely to the Met. do that. And I will, uh, the next time I go back, I will add the sculptures to my list. Oh, and um, then you brought up sort of like the counterpoint and I guess I have to thank you for recommending this show was the uh, Silvio Perlstein collection at Hauser and Worth which I went to immediately after seeing the Doug Aiken video yeah to clean the palette yeah uh, you know a a solid hour looking through three floors of the the collection so I mean since you recommended it maybe you want to tell people a little bit about that that show which is excellent and highly recommended yeah I thought that show would extraordinary it's as you said takes up three floors it's basically a museum show but i think i was trying to think of like why a museum wouldn't take that i happened to be visiting the show with a curator so of course this is what she was thinking about Mm. and she had thought that perhaps there would be too much in the collection that would compete with a major museum's permanent collection so it would be difficult to take on the hit list is just sort of almost unrelenting like these major canonical lists, that, like from Duchamp's Elosh O.O.Q. to Magritte's The Rape to Irving Penn's The Broken Egg. Like, you know, just almost no matter where you turn, there's these incredible works. But it's also sprinkled with this, like, incredible photography by a lot of artists who were completely unknown to me. Mm-hmm. And it was a uh, like sort of very strange figurative work. A lot um, of surreal- surrealist influenced photography around yeah. the female body. There was definitely like one row of like breasts. I yeah. Like, okay, yeah. now I at least, you know, there's a little bit of uh, Silvio's interest is coming through here <laughs> that might be... <laughs> The, the thing that he, um, I think, is said somewhere in, like, his kind of focus for the collection, he said that his collection was um, focused on works that made him uncomfortable in some way. And the work really did that, I thought, without descending too often into the abject or the spectacle. Mm-hmm. It was there, I think, as, like, a sort of, you know, tentacle of that interest, but it was not the only thing in the show, which I thought was great. Like, it was, this was work that I thought really challenged the viewer 
challenged the collector and was real connoisseurship and which was just something that's like you rarely see that these days and it was such a treat yeah i agree and i i make light of the fact that there was a wall of boobs but it was like you could tell that this collector was following a particular vision and whether it was sort of following a track through surrealism into more contemporary conceptual art to get to like bruce nauman or to ed Rocher. it's easy now to look back and say oh this is all canonical work but he was buying this work at the time it was being produced you know at least with the contemporary artist of the period. So there does seem to be a lot of risk taking, you know, present. Yeah. The the question you asked though of why is, you know, why isn't a museum taking this on? I think you also asked why is Hauser and Worth showing it if it's not for sale? Yes, which and I asked them. Did you find out? I'm trying to remember exactly what I was told, but it was something along the lines of we are able to take shows like this on from time to time, so we like to do it. <laughs> I I have to imagine that they are in a financial position where they are totally independent of selling out of the gallery, you know, that they have enough capital that they could do a couple of museum shows without selling anything. But I can't believe they're doing it completely out of the goodness of their own part. I just, I, I, I would well, have to Well, they're not wonder, a nonprofit. Yeah, they're not a nonprofit and that that must, they must have some relationship with, you know, is, I don't, is Silvio Perlstein still alive or is he dead? Is it an estate? Are they going to have some access to the collection or selling works out of it in some future arrangement? I, I have to imagine there's some, you know, relationship that uh, they will make some sales at some point, either on behalf of the collector or the estate. You know, there's got to be a, a financial side to that equation at some point. Sorry, now I'm just Googling to try and figure out whether he's still alive. I think he is. Yeah, so so I would imagine that Hauser and Worth has some relationship <laughs> with Silvio Perlstein that they will, showing this collection probably cemented that future handling of the estate or the collection, which to some degree probably suggests that it's not necessarily headed to a museum, it may not be donated in mass to like the Met or another museum to be permanently installed, but perhaps sold off. I think that about wraps up this portion of the show. Next week, or next episode, you can uh, look for us either with Ann Pasternak on the show or some alternative programming, which will be determined before we air. Great. Thanks, Patty. 